Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. Today, we should have a fun episode for you on whether or not the Articles of Confederation were better than today's Constitution of the United States. But first, happy afternoon, everyone. Christy, I hear your kiddo had a birthday recently. How many revolutions around this globe of ours has he gone? (laughs) He's seven now and very proud to be that old. Thankfully, it's not the terrible twos. Is seven like a good age? I don't have children. So is like seven like a like that perfect cute age or is it just where he's starting to get stubborn? No, he's still super cute and sweet and nice. Although he's also very tough. So he's, he's a good mix. <laughs> I think by seven, my parents had me doing labor and uh, working in the family business. So I think you're getting to the age now where you can fully start exploiting your investment. Good to know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what was your family business, Cody? Uh, my parents owned an engine rebuilding shop when I was a kid, so they were happy to staff it with their children. And our pay was, you know, food and a place to sleep at night. So, <laughs> are you a gearhead then? I, I've lost a lot of it. I wish I wish I had retained it, but uh, my dad was very adamant that I not become a mechanic. To the point where when I wasn't really feeling college anymore and was ready to drop out, my dad swore at me for the only time I can think of in my entire life uh, because I threatened to become a mechanic. So he did everything he could to ensure that I'm not a very good gearhead. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You know, my dad, my dad is actually the one that made me stay in college too. Like I want to drop out of law school after my first year. And he's like, no, you will regret (laughs) that for the rest of your life. Do not do it. And he was right. (laughs) Yeah, apparently. They know best, I guess. They do. <laughs> Both of my parents are teachers, and for the for their whole life, they said, don't become a teacher. We're poor. We don't make any money. Don't become a teacher. And, you know, here I am. Now I'm starting my fifth year teaching. And so what you're saying is Christy and I are, are better children than you were because we listened to our parents. You know what? I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. I am, I am, if you ask any of my three younger brothers, I'm 100% the favorite child. I'm 100% the favorite child. But, you know, that's great. I don't know if parents are allowed to have favorite children, but we are certainly allowed to have favorite documents. And Cody, is your favorite document a defunct system of government? Is it, oh, is it the man. Articles of Confederation? Or are you with us enlightened people who like the Constitution better? I feel like that just describes me as a person and and in my ideology and my everyday life. But, you know, I don't know if the, if I find the articles better than the constitution, I think I might, um, I, you know, I think that it's a really interesting question because I think a lot of, first of all, I think a lot of people don't know what the articles of confederation are. And I, I've said this to people in passing and they mean, they talk about 
the Confederate States. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Very different thing. No, we're there. not talking about Civil War rebel traitors. We're talking about something else. Exactly. We're we're a hundred years prior to that. We're so, talking about the other rebels and traitors. <laughs> the <laughs> rebels and traitors that we know and love. The revolutionaries, um, absolutely. So I I am not as quick to dismiss them as anybody else. Um, I think like most things, my opinion of them is ever evolving. And I see them as a very complex patchwork and system, even though it's much more arguably, I guess, simplistic than the constitutional structure. But I think that there is a lot more there and that there could have been a lot different or potentially even stronger system under the Articles of Confederation, even though there's also some pitfalls that probably would have come up. So for us plebeians and those of us uh, unattuned to the history of our country, what the hell are these things? What are, what are the Articles of Confederation and when and why did we have them? Yeah, so the Articles of Confederation, you can kind of think of them as the first constitution of the U.S. or the proto-constitution. Um, the Articles were argued about before they even came into an existence, like everything else. The main argument initially <laughs> was, can we write the Declaration of Independence and declare ourselves an independent sovereign nation apart from England if we don't have our own government? So that was the first fight, was do we write the articles first or do we write the declaration of independence first so the very first draft of these is actually done by benjamin franklin and it's called the albany plan and it's not really relevant today but he was a big fan of writing constitutions because he was a genius and renaissance man so he took the first crack at it they were immediately thrown out because everybody was just concerned about the revolution and inevitably they do end up drafting and writing the Declaration of Independence first, signing that. If you want to hear about that, go ahead and listen to the prior episode where we dig into the Declaration of Independence. 100% you should. <laughs> but they do that first. And then the Second Continental Congress appoints a committee to draft these articles. Um, they appoint uh, John Dickinson to be the chair of that committee. So he kind of drafts what we now have or then had as the actual um, articles. And those were finished in November of 1777. A lot of people don't rec realize that we didn't have a constitution for, you know, years. We existed under the Articles of Confederation at first. We had basically so, what was equivalent to the Rebel Alliance, just running things for, <laughs> for just a year of crazy, like, so what do we do now? Well, we should give money to Washington for food and soldiers. Nah, well, we'll do that later. Yeah, which comes to be pretty much the, the sole cause, uh, if not just maybe the most prominent cause of the loss of the articles. But um, so just to sum up the end, they're circulated starting in November of 1777. Virginia is the first to sign, which doesn't surprise anybody. Um, the last to sign is Maryland. Maryland actually holds out for a couple of years. And the only reason that Maryland actually signs on is because then the United States has established uh, an alliance with the French. And the French basically come in and go, we're not going to give you troops unless you have a government because we can't recognize you as an international or as a, as a nation in the international body. We can't support you against the British because you're not a nation unless you've all agreed to be a nation. So Maryland kind of gets bullied into it. Uh, the the t entire tale of the articles is Virginia versus Maryland half the time. So it's pretty apropos that, that Virginia's first. That's not anyone. 
<laughs> I'm surprised anyone even did they. Yeah. So, and basically it creates this kind of loose agreement between the states. They are almost considered to be their own individual governing, not quite nations. I was thinking about the best way to relay this. And of course, in order to make an analogy, I have to get even more obscure because otherwise that wouldn't be true to my soul. (laughs) So (laughs) the closest I can think of is kind of like the Hellenic League. When you're talking about like Greco-Persian wars and you've got this unity of Greek city-states and they all recognize that they have different government styles, they have different regulations, they have different things that are important to them, but they also recognize that they share certain things in common that rise above all of that and that's important for them to use to defend what they all hold dear against outside invaders. And that's really what the articles are. It is a loose agreement between 13 individual states that are going to govern how they want, but they're all agreeing to certain basic principles to protect themselves. Right. I mean, during the revolution before, and certainly even after the revolution, if you were a, a regular Joe living in Virginia, you almost never crossed the border into even Maryland right? New York certainly had nothing to do with Georgia. To, to leave your hometown, much less your home state, was, it, just, it was unheard of. And so it, it's, it, it's, I always found interesting when I, when I was reading the articles for today, the United States is all lowercase, right? The uh, states which are united with each other, that's, that's it, right? That the idea of a state, something that has Population, territory, sovereignty, and uh, what's the other one? Territory, sovereignty, population. Ah, there's another fourth one. But the basic idea is that you have literally 13 independent states from each other that are just saying, hey, do you hate the Brits? Yeah, I hate the Brits. Do you want to like rebel? Cool, I'm right there with you. But after that, they really had nothing in common besides maybe the English language. Well, and I think I think you make a good point, uh, both of you, on how independent these states were. And that's what I kind of think people don't realize, because um, I liked your, you know, ancient example, Cody, but uh, a more modern one, too, like people think of the European Union. They do not (laughs) recognize like the independence of their member nations anywhere near to the amount that in the Articles of Confederation, we recognize the independence of each state. So there's really no modern example at all that people can use to identify with. You really have to go uh, to your point way back in history to see anything even similar. Yeah. And Article 3 of the Articles of Confederation talks exactly about that treatment. And what it says is that the states are going to form a firm league of friendship. Now, I don't know what nation in the world is founded on a firm league friendship. of friendship, yes. but that's how we started. Um, and their, their three main concerns were common defense, security of their liberties, uh, and mutual and general welfare. And that was why they were forming this firm league of friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed they, they, um, 
say friendship, I think twice in you know, the whole Articles Confederation. It's really not that terribly long of a document. So it's like, hmm, to found a government on the idea of friendship. If only we could do that, but. <laughs> we did, we did do it. We, we existed under the Articles of Confederation for what, 14 years, right? I mean. I thought it was eight years. Is it eight? Was well, the war, war, I mean, if it's adopted in 77 and the constitution is not fully ratified. Oh, in 89, yeah, I'm going, I'm going yeah. from ratification time. So you're probably right. It's probably so adopted. 12 years. I think my math is a then, little off. <laughs> not long enough, but yeah. <laughs> the glory years. Yeah. So we get this idea of a, of a firm league of friendship of a perpetual union. It says, right. And mm-hmm. you know, Chris, you mentioned that it's a short document, but I don't think anyone who reads the articles would like on its face say, man, that was short because it's structured <laughs> really, really poorly. It is structured it, badly. It, it's, it's like when one of my kids writes an essay and a paragraph takes up two pages. It's like, yeah. where is the point in this one paragraph? You need, I, I can't, I, you need to ideate a little better. Yeah. And so they just shove a bunch of seemingly random powers and well not even powers clauses and authorizations together but right it, it doesn't really make any sense and i no, i mean I, I think the constitution itself and certainly the bill of rights is written in a far better and clearer style um more easier to follow in my opinion than the articles of confederation so i mean they had at the constitutional convention they had a committee called the committee on style to take care of that exact <laughs> uh, problem so you're not wrong they had their own editing board <laughs> yeah the articles they they weren't even i mean they the second continental congress established a committee to draft them but they were people weren't thinking about them they were a matter of necessity more than they were this ideological giant document it was much more of we need a government that establishes us on the world stage so you i think 13 people go figure it out (laughs) let's take a look at this government right so a government's got to have no anytime we talk about a government they have executive legislative and judicial powers they have a legislative power they have the congress of the united states assembled but uh can we say that they have any judicial or executive authority? Do, do those exist in there at all? There is judicial authority in there. Um, there is a provision that allows for them to establish and appoint certain members um, of the Congress or of the states to serve as like a proto-judiciary for the Fed. Um, right. so, so that does exist. That, in the, that I actually found that particularly interesting is that the Congress basically chose a pool of people to be on this. You know, if, if, if uh, New Jersey and New York have a conflict with each other, right, and they need to resolve it, Congress appoints a pool of people and then the two states whittle it down to, what, seven or nine yeah. commissioners or something like that? And then mm-hmm. they rule it. So I guess there is a kind of quasi-judicial power. So, I, I mean, that's... I actually kind of think that's really interesting. I kind of like that idea of a of a commissional of a, of a commissioned court for a specific purpose as compared to a perpetual one. I think we'll save that discussion just for a little bit. So they have a judicial power, quasi judicial power. What about executive? Yeah, there's an executive too. So they uh, very different. The president is not elected by a vote of the states. Um, the president is selected by a vote of the members of Congress who are appointed by the states. Like um, a parliament? Kind of. It's like a small P president. I think it's actually a small P president in the document. 
And the idea there that it looks to me from what I can tell is that it's much more of like a parliamentarian, somebody that's just going to control the debate, control the, the discussion, but has very little authority because a lot of the things that we think about being vested executive powers today were actually part of the legislative process. So, um, you know, the president today can respond to a, an immediate matter of national security, but Congress has to declare formal war. So that was still correct under the articles. There's just not that provision for us responding to an immediate, you know, need. That probably would have been more vested in the state that would have had the problem or, you know, calling upon the Congress. But Congress is also very small in the Articles of Confederation. It's a few people sent by the states to represent the Seven state. Seven to nine people per state or something like mm-hmm. that? Yeah. And then do, 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 were the states represented by population? Did like New Jersey have fewer people than Virginia? Christian, do you know anything about this? Yeah, no, they, it wasn't population-based. They each had one, one vote. Just, just one. That's it. So there's 13 one. votes in the Congress. Yeah. Yep. Wow. It's perfect. Does, so you, you could send more delegates to represent you and to be part of the discussion, but your state as a whole had to limit themselves to one vote. So I guess that makes sense because there's something called the Committee of States, and this is to me the most bizarre aspect of the Articles of Confederation. <laughs> When Congress is not in session, there is a permanent committee of, what, 13 guys who stay behind and they make decisions in lieu of Congress. Is that, is am I understanding the committee of states right? Yeah, and there had to be a minimum of nine present for that committee to do anything. Right, so a, kind of a super quorum to get things rolling. Yeah. And th- so what... <laughs> What prevented a member of Congress from just not showing up like, eh, my vote doesn't really matter. If my state only gets one, why, why should I be there? Welcome to the downfall of the Articles of Confederation that literally happened. Um, a couple of the Congresses that were supposed to be held under the article uh, couldn't be held because enough states didn't show up. So that was actually a problem and is one of the reasons that you inevitably get or eventually maybe not inevitably uh, get the constitution is that that was a a significant problem is that certain states basically thought that they didn't have enough power or sway to do anything but they also had kind of a super veto power in some scenarios so states could just not show up so that there wasn't the quorum necessary for the congress to do anything and in matters of amending the articles, it had to be unanimous. So states could, so you had this scenario where a state might not have much sway in general matters of Congress that was firmly within their decided powers. But when you tried to expand that power, that little state of Rhode Island got to throw punches like a mean right hand. So it's it, like a worse version of the Senate, so to speak, or better, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. Yeah. So it is, a, it is a weird structure in that sense. So they don't have an executive that we would understand. They have someone, they have more like a speaker of the house. We don't really have anyone that can like do what Congress has instructed. When Congress passes a law or commits an act, there's no one to really like make it happen, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's kind of something we can talk about later as a potential flaw or maybe a potential benefit. But there, there is 
a few good things about the article. Certainly there's gotta be a couple of good things. Otherwise we wouldn't have kept it for nearly 15 years. There's, um, there's something called the full faith and credit clause in the constitution of the United States. There's also, and I read this yesterday. There's also a full faith and credit in the articles. Christy, do you, did you read this? Did you, what, what does full faith and credit mean for those who don't really get that idea? Yeah, well, so actually, ha, funny, it was a different part of the article of, Con of Confederation I was going to talk about, like, to your point earlier of them kind of being scattered in different <laughs> ideas yeah, in no that way. article. I may let Cody take how that was applied in the Articles of Confederation. He might have a better handle on that than me. <laughs> what did you it's, find? Uh, my understanding is it was this almost the same as what we would understand the early jurisprudence around full faith and credit. Um, it didn't really come up much because they were fairly short-lived and, and Stanton, like you were talking about, there wasn't a lot of interstate travel. It wasn't all that common. My understanding of their intent is what they eventually put into the constitution is just basically saying that if a certain state, um, you know, th that states had to give full faith and credit to laws and to adjudications of the other states. So because there's also kind of this like extradition clause in there that operates much the same way of, you know, there's this agreement that we are firmly bound together beyond just this like international law sense, but much more closely. So, so I sue uh, you in New York, I win. You flee to New Jersey to escape it. New Jersey still has to recognize that I won. They'll force you to comply. Dead on. Yeah. Uh, and, and that doesn't change. In That's the a way better way to say that than me rambling on for three minutes. <laughs> no, I, I, I think your, yours made sense because you're basically saying it's what, cause that's, that's how, you know, it's taught for the constitution that, and I guess that's exactly what it was for the articles. Yeah. So, okay. So we have that thing going for the articles that, that they've got this firm league of friendship still, still bound together in their judicial system. Chrissy, you said you found something else in article four. What did you find? Yeah, so I think Article 4 is interesting because it also, uh, people are familiar with like privileges and immunities clause. So there's also privileges and immunities clause in the Articles of Confederation, um, just saying that inhabitants of each of these states shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states. Now there's a couple things in that clause that bring up, I think, something we're going to talk about later, but they specifically laid it out that only free citizens are much more explicit that slaves could not take part in these privileges and immunities or other rights than the Constitution was. Um, and they also a little more vague on the idea of slavery. Sort of it was absolutely. It, it, it winks at that notion, but the article said, "Nope, they're free people, and they're not free people." See, I actually disagree there. Uh oh, because. Okay. The way that the articles write it says that it doesn't say that all free persons are entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizenship. It says all people are entitled to like the privileges and immunities of a free citizen. So it's not saying that non-free people aren't entitled to those. It's saying that everybody who is a member of the state is entitled to privileges and immunities. At least that's how I read it. So I'll, I will disagree with you because <laughs> this is more fun. Um, if I'm reading it right, it specifically says the free inhabitants of each of these states. Oh, okay. Hoppers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice excluded shall be in entitled to privileges and immunities of free citizens. Okay. So like, I think it's like the double application of free on both ends, um, saying free inhabitants are entitled to the rights of free citizens. Um, I also right. personally have an issue with how they excluded like 
paupers and vagabonds, fugitives <laughs> from justice. Makes You're sense. a gypsy, get out, is basically what that's. I know, right? Well, and it's a throwback to English common law, like the system that all the founders were used to. Um, paupers, I mean, there's a few explanations of that definition, but one of them not just being poor people, but being people like completely reliant on other human beings for their welfare and to live like who didn't have a job, who didn't provide or contribute in any way. So not just like you're poor and <laughs> it was a far more extensive definition than that. And in America today, it'd be very foreign to us to say, oh, those people don't have the same rights as us. Um, obviously you know, in our understanding, they should and the constitution set that out, but we even have like popper jurisprudence, don't we? What? We even have like popper jurisprudence, don't we? Like into like Supreme court, modern, idea that a poor man should have all the facilities to sue well that was a, yep. that was a particular famous supreme court case wasn't it that was the man who sued for his liberty while he was in prison who was that who am i thinking of i know I nothing there was a a blank, man, but... he was in prison he studied law books from his cell and he sued he access what was this it's like a it's a selective incorporation one. Oh, what am i talking about you're certainly on to something. There's a lot oh, of cases like that, man. obviously, that interpreted how the rights of the Constitution are applied to every class of people imaginable, um, which I don't think would have been possible under the Articles of Confederation. So before we get into this back and forth, because I'm so excited to see this back <laughs> and forth between you two, we're hinting at some really strong um, weaknesses and some pretty decent strengths of the articles yeah. no uh, i think i think the the biggest thing in favor of the articles is that they let the states kind of run themselves right state sovereignty small republics join together right yeah. I, lo I love that example to, to to ancient greece but eventually it does disappear um so there it had to have been something uh something of of there had to have been a major problem, right? Otherwise, the, the Constitutional Convention would have been called. And the convention, the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia itself was called to just amend the articles. And then the delegates all there said, yeah, screw it, we're going to replace it. But why was, it, why was a, an amending Constitution, excuse me, why was an amending convention even convened? What was the purpose of that? What, what led to that? So the, the big problem that they pointed to is... Funding, essentially. I mean, that really drives the conversation when we start talking about moving to a constitution. Because under the articles, you have a lot of problems of not being able to fund the military, not being able to fund Washington, not being able to, and I mean the man, not the place, mm -hmm. um, not being able to, to fund all of these powers that the Congress does technically have. So the... Articles of Confederation do not give the federal government, the, the Congress, the power to levy tax. They do not have that power. So the, the tax and spend clause that we have in our current constitution was designed to fix what they viewed as a problem. The way that they had to get money was basically the states were supposed to pay into a general fund. Interestingly, proportionate to the value of their property within the state. Now, and, and I'm going to hint at this. The Southern this states is, must have had a, just a heyday with that. Well, this is actually specifically because of that, right? So we, a lot of us have talked about the problem behind the three-fifths clause, three-fifths compromise, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
which basically was a measure while they were uh, drafting the constitution in order to get the Southern states on board with a certain amount of population representation in the house because the Southern states wanted to count their slaves for the purposes of um, house representation, but didn't obviously consider their slaves to be people in any other aspect. They so wouldn't have just, their cake and eat it too. Exactly. The Articles of Confederation completely avoid that by saying, I don't care about your population. It matters about the value of the land within your state. Because this was also important for things like Maryland and Rhode Island, who are really worried about being tiny compared to states that were currently large and had the ability to expand out westward based you know, on their geographic boundaries too. So the idea is that states were supposed to contribute to the fund proportionate to their, their value of their property and that the Congress can draw on that for purposes of funding things that were within the Congress's power. The biggest problem is the states just didn't do it. The states were so much more worried about their, the funds within their own internal borders that they just didn't contribute to the general fund so then you've got Washington, you know, wintering the army, stealing food because he can't afford to buy it because the money that Congress is printing is worthless because it's not backed by anything. So people in the, the U.S. during the revolution are selling food to the British because they're paying them in pounds, pounds sterling. That means something versus our currency. So that was honestly the biggest problem they pointed to. They had so much respect for Washington that when he pointed to that as being a giant problem, um, it just kind of drew fire. And Madison wrote a document called The Defects of the Articles of Confederation. And he talks about things like that, specifically the funding. But I would actually charge that the problem wasn't the funding. It was that the articles didn't give them any enforcement capability to ensure that they got funding. And that goes back to the lack of the executive, that even if the articles did grant the power to tax, and even if they did levy a specific tax, there's no way to collect it. There's no, there's no, there, there's no President Washington. There's just General Washington following, following orders, right? So, yeah. So you keep mentioning Washington. Washington's got to have a, have a role in, in, in this collapse of the articles. What, what, is, what, what happens right before the Philadelphia Convention? Yeah, so Washington is, um, uh, he's, I mean, I think he's the main player. I, I think that Madison's document is very powerful and is very persuasive. But I think Washington standing as the individual that basically says, we got lucky and we wouldn't have made it through this without foreign aid because we couldn't do enough to fund our own defense, our own common defense and defend the colonies that the, the articles were fundamentally problematic. So he, he's, he, not only does he have to deal with these like kind of disgruntled soldiers, he's stealing food, right? We win the war. Hoorah, hoorah. We live under the articles for a, a span of a few years. Um, What, what's this meeting at Mount Vernon like? What, what are they discussing? What are they talking about? Because he eventually does call a meeting. And who does he call? And I know Benjamin Franklin is, is attending there. Does anyone else show up to Mount Vernon? Oh, I don't remember who's there. I can't remember either. But I'm pretty, do, Chris, do you, have, do you remember who's at the meeting at Mount Vernon? I don't. 
I, I can't remember quite off the top of my head either. I know Frank was, was there. I'm, I don't think Adams was. Adams and Jefferson were abroad uh, representing the country to foreign powers. I think Madison might have been called simply for his uh, first pamphlet that he wrote. But essentially, he said, you've got to go back to your home states and you gotta, we, we've got to call an, uh, an amending uh, convention for the articles. And they do. And they all, and, and no, everyone's kind of like, I don't think anyone at the time was really like, yeah, the articles are great. Even, even our true, true libertarian Patrick Henry, I don't even think he liked the articles. I think he preferred it to the Constitution. I'll, I'll grant you that. But I think he himself recognized that there were some serious defects to the articles. Or am I wrong on that? I, I That's probably fair. I'd love to project onto Patrick Henry. But <laughs> he did famously, when they did decide to call the Constitutional Convention and, and actually draft the Constitution, um, Virginia tried to send Patrick Henry as their representative, and he said no. And famously, although probably not accurate, uh, in response, he said, I smell a rat. Yeah. And basically thought that they were going to create this ever powerful federal government, which they think they didn't today. It looks like they kind of did accidentally. Um, and so he was very concerned about what was, what would come out of it. I don't know how much he loved the articles, but thought that they were kind of pragmatically the better solution. See, and I wonder if he had gone and represented Virginia and showed up, would we have an even better document in the Constitution? I think he's awesome. I think he could have given more rights states and probably with his great um, speech-making abilities convinced a lot of the people to to do that. So I, I will say that I think it was a mistake of him not to go to the to the convention and decline to use his influence. <laughs> Welcome to minarcho-libertarianism in a uh, nutshell. <laughs> Refuse to participate and then claim, be angry afterwards that it didn't go the right way. No, no duh, man. <laughs> if that's not the perfect example of why the Libertarian Party has yet to win any big election, I can't think of a better one than that. Okay, so Mount Vernon happens. A constitutional convention is called really just to amend the articles. George Washington is appointed as president of the convention, but he immediately basically kind of like steps aside because what they do is everyone there looking at each other, winking at each other says, yeah, this isn't going to work. The articles are just, even if they could amend it, a 13-member a unanimous vote to change the articles was just not going to happen for any effective change. And so they immediately said, we've got to start over, which is, you know, in, a, in itself, its own legal revolution, right? We, we had one pre-existing law, the articles, and we just ignored it. And we adopted something else, not using the old government's rules. That, that is illegal revolution. But it, it and, I, and I love that fact that we had two revolutions in this country. But the, the Constitutional Convention goes on and we have everything we need to know about it from Madison's extensive and exhaustive notes. We know that men like Hamilton is really shaping the ideas of federal central power. Um, Adams is not there. Jefferson is not there. Patrick Henry, Sam Adams, they're not there either. And we get what we have today, the Constitution of the United States. And we'll have a conversation about the Constitution on itself, I'm sure, in many, 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 many different episodes because <laughs> a wonderful document to, to analyze in itself. However, 
when comparing what we have today to the articles, there are essentially three, I would say even four major questions. I think the first thing that we should tackle is slavery, right? Does slavery go away under the Articles of Confederation? If they do, does it take longer? Federal revenue, do, how do we solve this idea of funding a national government? National defense, are we secure? Do we, are we able to secure our liberties under the Articles, even a reformed series of articles? And then what I consider the big fourth question, which is more philosophical, is which one is superior for the mode of liberty, right? Which, which mode of government is superior for liberty? One that allows the states to kind of do whatever under the articles or the federal constitution. So I don't, let's start with the, the biggest one there. Let's start with slavery. Christy, and- do we get rid of slavery under the Articles of Confederation? Yeah, I mean, I imagine that by today it would be gone. Um, I do right. think eventually we would have. I mean, Britain under its own system eventually got rid of slavery. I mean, most, if not every civilized nation in the world, like, has ended legalized slavery. So now, yes. But I personally think it would have taken way longer just because of the requirement that any change be unanimous and the direct writing in the articles that said the free inhabitants and the free citizens and associated privileges and rights only with people who were free. So, I mean, it inherently recognized slavery as outside of the realm of rights and then to require unanimous agreement that Southern states were not about to do that anytime soon. I'm almost, I'm almost wondering if that does happen, if slavery does go into the articles. And, here, and here's why. You mentioned every modern nation has gotten rid of slavery, so to speak. Every, every civilized right, nation. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll clarify. Even Great Britain did not too long after us. But mm-hmm. you know, Great Britain had a, had a different way of, uh, of executing its, its culture, right? The reason I'm, yeah. I'm concerned why we don't get rid of it is how twisted southern christianity wrapped up slavery as as almost like a a a noble christian thing to do i'm not sure if the abolition movement gets any real footing in the southern states on the articles because the articles allow the states to do what they want right there there's no bill of rights that 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 enables people to speak freely um theoretically states could kick people out if they if they were causing too much of a ruckus i'm wondering if that does happen and i'm wondering if other nations abandon slavery if they don't have our example of getting rid of slavery as well so mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not entirely convinced that goes away but cody is just itching to say something i know cody do you <laughs> say the end of the articles i think that see i would argue that the articles are actually um less endorsing of slavery than the constitution. The constitution does not by any means endorse slavery. Mm-hmm. The founders from day one thought that slavery was an evil institution and they wanted to put, put it on a ticking time clock. So you have, so slavery is not mentioned in the constitution nor is it mentioned in the articles. You have two portions of the constitution that deal with slavery, right? So you have the three fifths, clause the three-fifths compromise mm-hmm. um and which we've already talked about dealing with treating for population for house of representatives um and then you have ending the atlantic slave trade so 
you're dealing with these problems, but they allow for it to continue until the 1800s. Obviously, like what is January? Is it January 1st? It's something like that. It's like it's, a 20 year moratorium. Well, and then the day that the moratorium expires, they ban it. So they were just waiting to, to get at it. Yeah, it is important to know that under the Constitution, as soon as Congress was allowed to, they did end the slave trade, if not slavery itself. So that, that is a, a plus for the Constitution, so to speak. And so you do have the problem in the articles of this unanimous consent. Mm-hmm. Does that pass under unanimous consent? I, I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think so. Um, it's pretty hard to assume that all of the southern states would have signed on. I mean, you see very basic things that don't don't pass. However, there's a lot of things that indicate that the articles could have been leading towards a similar conversation or, or a similar outcome. So you have um, a number of states ban slavery while under the articles, right? So five out of the 13 states prohibit slavery under the articles. No constitution involved, no drafting. They do it on their own. Um, even Virginia passes its uh, manumission law under the articles. It talks about abolition under the articles, but doesn't actually abolish. So there's already this conversation going on. I think the biggest indicator for me is the Northwest Ordinance. Northwest Ordinance is passed under the articles. And the Northwest Ordinance basically says that as it, it does two things, it allows places in the territories, which are west of the current states, to become states if they're settled, they have a, a boundary, and there's 20,000 people, Something I like think. That. I think that's right. So it does that. But what it does is those can all become states, except they can't have slavery. And so you've got this proto, it's a proto 13th Amendment. It's basically a, a prohibition on slavery to any state that enters into the union. So what you would eventually have, I think, under the articles is certainly a majority of states that are anti-slavery. But the ultimate question is, could you have banned it via an amendment to the article? Or is there a different way that they could have argued that slavery was inappropriate. And I don't know what that conversation looks like because even by the time you get to the 1860s, Lincoln violates the constitution in order to end slavery. Mm -hmm. Lincoln violates the constitution in order to end slavery. So there are problems there as well. I don't think anybody would argue that that was a bad idea. I mean, he did, he's one of, if not the best president that we've had. I mean, Washington's up there too, but you know, I don't know that the, the, the idea of slavery was so repugnant to so many members of the founding era through the 1860s that we went to war over it under our constitutional system of government. And I don't know that you don't have something very similar to that under the articles. Obviously, they're a lot more deferential to state power and they're a lot more deferential to state decisions. But we see this evolution of law under the constitution I mean, the suffrage movement and women getting the vote, I mean, that's an amendment to the Constitution, but is there, does that also find a way to happen under the Articles as culture shifts? And this is a big problem with the, you know, with the idea of what if historical questions. Maybe they amend the Articles in which uh, changing the Articles goes from 13 states to 10 states or to you know, three-fourths uh, to, to th- three vote or whatever. Maybe they change that. No, 
does a civil war happen? Because, you know, if the states can't, if the Congress can't do anything to your state laws, then there's no need to secede. If there's no need to secede, there's no civil war. So there's a, there's so many what ifs, but I think all three of us in one level or another, we don't end slavery before 1860. I don't think. No, I don't think so. I don't think you would have done it universally across the nation. Like I think to Cody's point, there absolutely were states who wanted to do it and founding fathers by majority would have mm-hmm. loved to have done it from the beginning. But yeah, I don't think a lot of the Southern states came on board. And, and, and actually throwing back to something you said, Stan, with the, with the abolitionist and the different view of slavery in Christianity in the South, I think part of the reason the abolition movement could reach the South so effectively prior to and during the Civil War is because we were a more unified nation and what other states thought was a little more relevant. Not, I mean, not as relevant as it may be today. People now are like, could care less what state they live in. And back then it mattered a whole lot. But I think under the articles, when states are so separate, why would you care one bit what abolitionists and fellow Christians from New York say? Like, and I mean, I think the difference in the Constitution sets it up where you do have to care a little bit more. <laughs> Here's yeah. the other thing I would pose is that I don't think any of us would argue today that the government is confined to the Constitution anymore. I mean, they are supposed to be, right. but they don't, operate like that, though. <laughs> they don't actually operate like that. So I wonder what the articles become after 100 years. Yeah. What do they look like? And I truly think that the one downfall of the articles isn't the funding, isn't anything else, is that unanimous consent of the states. Mm -hmm. I think that is the ultimate problem. I think if you have, you know, three-fourths majority of Congress proposes it and it's ratified by three-fourths of the states, I think you fixed almost every problem under the articles. Mm -hmm. And I think you're starting from a weaker point than the Constitution starts with for the federal government. And I think that's a good thing today. I want you to hold on to that, Cody, because that's that's oh. that's like my. I think that's going to be our our closing point. Hold on to that that idea of Spoilers. limited government power. <laughs> I think that is the perfect end cap for this. But before we do, because that is that is the most important question I think for us is this idea of is liberty more better protected by the Constitution or articles? But the other problems aren't un unimportant, right? The idea of we need money for a government, right? Now, granted, if you're an ANCAP, screw government. We don't need money for them at all. But assume we're going to have a government. It's nice to have it funded, okay? Right. How do you – do we, do we just assume that eventually the states will start paying their way into Congress? Do we assume that there's going to be an executive that they finally say, hey, we should have this to you know, collect our money? I'm not yeah. convinced here. I'm not even convinced the national government survives past 1830 without money. Yeah, you sound I mean, like General Washington, okay? <laughs> you know what? If that's an insult, I'll take it 100% every time, <laughs> every day of the week. Compliment. It's a good thing. Yeah, I don't know. I think part of the problem is when you don't require it and have the executive branch to enforce it, like an executive branch with actual power. Um, the digs. You'll have. Some, <laughs> <laughs> you'll have you'll have some states that just that year won't feel like it. Like some years they will be like, yes, it's important to contribute to the national defense. Maybe they personally like felt the help fighting off pirates or the other things the articles (laughs) refer to. But 
there's going to be years where there's going to be like, we're small and we can skate by on the other states funding the government. And then you're going to get the states that we're trying to pay in good faith, get mad at those states. And I think then you break the unity in the nation. So for a whole lot of reasons, I think you have to actually have enforcement mechanisms or it's not going to get funded. Yeah, I think that that's the my second problem um, is the lack of ability to enforce the articles. Um, I don't know if that derives from part of the problem of unanimous consent. I mean, maybe if it was three fourths, they would have had some way to do that because it's not it's not up to the states if they want to pay. The articles say shall, which is means they're required to pay, which means they're not complying with the agreement that they signed with the United States. They're violating the articles if they refuse to pay. I mean, the problem is that's like, I don't know, going into a major city today and breaking the law. And if the cops aren't going to come, then does it matter? So this, this point about, you know, if they're not going to pay so often the, they were just, and you made it point, you made it clear shall pay. It was not an option. And yet they chose, chose to treat it like an option. If the States aren't going to pay, if they're not going to do the, just the bare minimum of pay into the general treasury, what's to say that a state comes to the defense of another? Because one of the key aspects of the article is, is that an attack upon one of the states was to be treated as an attack upon all of the states. It was essentially a common defense treaty. Mm-hmm. But if states are just ignoring their minimum obligations of not paying to the general treasury, why would we expect them to come to the defense of another state? Like, right. were they mo- would they have been motivated? Like, oh, yeah, this is actually important, so well, hey, we'll show up. Or is it, nah, forget Georgia. Screw <laughs> those guys. What, what? I, mean, I think long term is the problem, Stanton. Like initially, I think when this was formed, they still had that like fighting unified spirit. I mean, they just fought the revolution together and sent whatever they had and whoever they had to go win our independence. So I think initially, perhaps that that memory of how well that worked and that motivation to band together as brothers may have continued for a while. But I think you're completely right that long term, you're like, eh we're doing fine, doesn't affect us. And, and if I'm right about the articles, every state got to train and appoint and choose their own militia too. So you're definitely gonna have some states with far more powerful, capable like militia who actually took it seriously and then other ones who are like, eh, whatever, we're fine. So I think there's a lot of disparities that would happen. I mean, technically, <laughs> technically that's the system we have today still. I mean, states have full militia power today. Um, they just, I, love, I love how you say those smile because you know it's such horse crap. <laughs> I love how you say that because we know they have it, but they don't because the National Guard is there for them. Well, and the other problem, right, is that the Constitution and the Articles decry the idea of a standing military mm-hmm. and you know required it to be refunded and reapproved every two years. So what right. we inev- what we have in today's system is a standing military that Congress just reapproves a new budget every two years and grows it every year, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, but no, I, I, I don't know. I think, I think all of the, <laughs> so, so let, let's, let me pose a hypothetical. Again, this is another what if, so there are just a bunch of different things that could happen, but let's say that by the miracle of God, the articles of the United States, the, the articles of confederation U S is able to expand to the Pacific. 
I don't think that happens on the articles, but let's say it does. Why would Maryland care about an attack on Oregon? So far away, and you know, by the time they get to Colorado, it'll be taken care of. And if you know, if they get to Kansas, yeah, then we'll come to the defense. But why, what, what would incentivize the governor of Maryland to send militia literally across the country? Or, and I'll pose you another what if to think about while you answer this one, um, what prevents a state like, say, New York from just saying, you know what, forget liberty. We're going to start our own American empire. We're going to gobble up New Jersey. We're going to gobble up uh, Rhode Island. We're going to gobble up all these other local states and create our own regional power. So you got two questions. Why does New York send troops to Oregon? Why doesn't New York start its own regional autonomous power? So to the first, I think... The system is a little bit more intricate than that under the articles. So Congress would declare war. Congress also would appoint any military commander over the rank of Colonel. Colonel, Colonel, I think. Yeah. So basically the idea would be that Congress could appoint the general, they'd come in and organize the militias. I mean, what enforcement, I mean, aside from sending in the military to the fed right now, the only other enforcement, authority that they're supposed to have is to control the purse. Right. So you don't necessarily have that under the articles, but you know, I, I, Congress would declare war. Congress would appoint the leaders of the military and the leaders of the military would be able to go in and marshal the state militia resources to the best benefit of the United States. Um, now, if you're going to look at it uncharitably and assume that they're not, the militias are not going to want to respond when called by the congressional generals, you, I think you also have to look at it in the, the kind of same way as progression is, what does that look like in 100 years? Is there a little bit of a different pull for what state militia means? Um, you know, this is the problem of playing what if history. Yeah. But, and, and, and the articles, I mean, they, they survived for a while, but. 12 years is nothing. I mean, we're talking about, we currently have 250 years of constitutional history. Mm-hmm. 12 years is so hard to draw an example of. Um, I suppose I get worried about the idea of a quasi political feudalism that, 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 you know, we don't, yes, we have these articles of confederation, but as, as times goes on, as, as the country would get bigger, certain States would just have greater influence over other local states, especially if their economies were bigger, right? If New York was to become the economic powerhouse it was today, it's going to dominate the politics of the Northeast, just as, say, California would dominate the Western coast, as Texas would dominate the Southwest, and so on and so forth. And so while they're voting in Congress, they're going to, you know, Arizona's going to look to Texas and say, what should we do? But then California's going to say, hey, Arizona, we're, we're close by too. You should probably listen to us as well. I don't know. I, I feel like the article. You mean like what happens now? <laughs> I yeah, mean, but- New York kind of control. So the difference here you get is what, what's so alien to us is the idea of a federal government that doesn't play a role in our lives. Mm-hmm. And that's what the articles establish. There is very, there's nothing here basically saying very little saying what the States can and can't do. There are certain things they have to secure the privileges are in, and immunities and immunities for free people. Um, 
free inhabitants. I'm, I'm really upset. I missed the first free. Uh, <laughs> it just makes it so much worse. <laughs> but uh, there's there are bumpers set up on what the states kind of can and can't do, but so much would have been up to the states. So we'd be living in a world 250 later, 250 years later, where if the federal government had even grown anyway, you are thinking about your state and the local so much more than the fed. And that's even what the constitution was supposed to do, obviously granting more power, but it's really hard to say what it looks like when Oregon enters the articles. Um, I don't know what the system looks like a hundred years later. I do know that there are obligations that the state had, that the states would have had. Um, the, the ultimate problem is how do you enforce those obligations? And I really don't know if under a pure reading of the articles, there's a good answer for that. So let me ask. Well, and, and since oh, we're ahead, like, Christy. you're sorry. No, <laughs> since ahead, we're theorizing here, like I used to love the choose your own adventure books. Like, which one do you choose? Where do you go? But I, I have my personal theory is that had we kept the Articles of Confederation, we the United States would look a whole lot more like Europe. Uh, we wouldn't be the world superpower that we are. I actually think the the current structure, and I think the federal government is too big right now. But still, the current structure with a more powerful federal government, as contrasted with the Articles, enables us as one unified nation to actually be a world superpower. I think in the Articles, you because you see so much focus on states' rights, and yet some contradictions in that, like the property tax article, I kind of, I actually kind of have a problem with how they tried to charge taxes based on the value of your land. Like you could see some states getting very upset at that once like Alaska discovered oil and gas. I mean, but was to have so few inhabitants, why should they pay? Why shouldn't they separate, break from the Articles of Confederation and become their own nation? Why shouldn't New York form a little coalition with New Jersey and, you know, all those other states. And would we have broken up and more closely resembled Europe? And then who would be the world superpower? I think, yeah, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. They, they couldn't form coalitions. They're prohibited from doing so under the articles. But again, I mean, <laughs> right. But <laughs> what they do anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what, interests me most and i apologize stanton i just i know you you're you're be like oh that's the the final flag but i keep going back no, no, to this I was, idea I, I was actually saying hey let's get to the final flag because oh man we're Perfect. here <laughs> i think i think what we're bringing up is is this point that now we know how the constitution has developed now whether or not it should have that's a right. different subject we know how it has we don't know how the articles would have there's a really strong potential that the articles could have just created this kind of very political feudal system in which we are open to attack, rebellion, states versus states. Then there's also another strong possibility that the articles create this libertarian utopia in which we have potentially 50 small republics with strong interstate defense systems with a potential amendment that allowed us with a commander in chief, but so on and so forth, that there's a strong potential for a very good libertarian society under the articles. The question then, should we have abandoned the articles in the hopes of creating a better article based 
union as compared to a constitution-based union. And I think that's kind of our final point because this is what's this is the whole point of the show. What would have been best for liberty? Is the constitution today best for liberty as is, or would the articles have been? Yeah, and you know, why did Sparta go to the defense of Greece when the Persians were invading? You know, why did the Athenian fleet move and, and risk so much? Um, I mean, the first Persian invasion you, at Marathon, Sparta dragged its heels, decided not to send, sent. They ended up getting there a day too late and, and they didn't play any part in the battle whatsoever, yet they were defended much the same. I don't know if that's what you end up with. And, and my ultimate, because I've been talking a lot uh, about the articles and I want Christy to have the last thought here, but my ultimate kind of two-pronged thought here is I think that they could have fixed the articles as opposed to throwing them in the trash and creating the constitution. And I, I think that we'll not considering that solution more effectively or more deliberately was a big problem. I think there are minor things that you could tweak that solve a lot of these problems of, you know, um, unanimous consent and lack of enforcement authority. And I think that you can make them better. And I think them better is a better starting point for our nation than the constitution might have been. Because I think as we know, right, government is this ever growing Leviathan that will always try and grab more power, will always define its terms in benefit to itself. And I wonder if you start with a, a slightly fixed articles and you grow your nation from there, if you don't end up with a, a strong nation that is, you know, uh, made up of a bunch of very individual but very strong parts that are willing to contribute to the whole, even if it's not for a, you know, financial gain, or if it's not just out of the goodness of their heart, it's, you know, mutually beneficial to ensure that there's not another nation that invades and takes over the East Coast. You don't want to share a border. Fun fact, they invited Canada to join. And the Canada automatic in intros, yeah. Auto entry. Canada could have joined subject to no, uh, no approval process. And I think a big reason for that was the border. They, not only was it them trying to, to you know, offer an olive branch, since I'm on Greek and Roman history today, uh, to the Canadians, I think a big reason for that was the border. They didn't want a foreign sovereign that close to the United States because yeah. that was foreign to them. So I, I'll leave it there. And I think that that is my ultimate takeaway in my what if moment when I get to sit, you know, in 2020 and theorize is I think we could have fixed them. And I wonder if it's a better starting point. So fixing the articles is better than throwing them away, certainly for the ideas of liberty, potentially even for a lot of other things. Christy? Well, I actually don't think there's <laughs> not a lot of room between what I think and what Cody thinks. I think you actually summarize that quite well. I think sometime in the future, it'd be fun to talk about like different founding fathers, because I think Patrick Henry could have solved Cody's problem. I think he could have fixed it all. Um, I also personally think James Madison, though, who wrote the Constitution, was extremely brilliant, amazing human being. Um, I love what he did with the Constitution. And I would not have been opposed to the idea, I think, of amending the articles, probably in some more significant ways than Cody. <laughs> um, do I think I just 
lean back on the idea that without a, a stronger centralized federal government, I know tough words for libertarians, um, <laughs> it would just be very difficult to be the world superpower. And, and I don't think it's only about power, and it sounds like it is, but I think liberty is spread throughout the world in a more effective way with the United States under a constitutional republic standing as that light on a hill, as so many of our presidents have said. And I think we might have missed that opportunity and another nation might have taken that place who would not have embraced liberty as much as we have. I mean, would it be China today? I don't know. And I think that's, that is my biggest problem with a federal government that's not big enough is would we have effectively spread liberty around the world and been such an example around everywhere? <laughs> so, to, so to make this point very clear, I want to, I want, I want to ask you both a question and you, you only get basically two options. <laughs> if you were to go back to 1789, no, no, let's go 1788. To 1788, are you a Federalist or are you an anti-Federalist? Are you a Federalist saying we need the, we, let's sign the Constitution, let's ratify, let's put it into power? Or are you one of those anti-Federalists who say, yeah, I don't like the articles, but it's better than whatever these hacks have proposed. What are you? Do, do, do you write the Federalist Papers with, uh, with Publius or do you write Brutus number two? Uh -huh. I, I'd be a Federalist, though I, I will give the one qualification that I do think Alexander Hamilton went too far. So You're probably right about that. He was too far, but I would have been a Federalist. Cody? I probably would have been, oh man, you're going to make me say it. This I is am. recorded. <laughs> this is, people are going to hear this. I'm going to have to answer. Do you understand that as soon as I utter these words, I'm going to have to answer this question for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been an anti-Federalist in the vein of Patrick Henry and George Mason, in the idea that the creation of such a strong central federal government inhibits individual liberty and natural rights. And I would have been concerned after reading the Constitution, like the Anti-Federalists were, that that was the case and that there needed to be bumpers on that government. That's fair. I'll answer this question and say, I'm John Adams, I'm in England, and I don't have a vote, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> That's not fair. Oh, wow. <laughs> but here we are. I'm John Adams, and I come back and I say, hoorah, you guys passed the Constitution. I'm all here for it. I'll run for president. George? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll be vice president. Ugh, so, you really are a teacher. This just brings me back. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a, an amazing second episode for us. Uh, we are very happy. We're going to be moving forward. We're not sure what our next show is going to be about, uh, but whatever it is, it's going to be about liberty. It's going to have odd opinions, and it's going to be a, about ideas that are self-evident. So with that, we will see you next time. Be sure to subscribe to us, and until then, see you later. <laughs>